Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gayatri. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You'll also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. The last year or more has been a tough one for all of us and the second wave of COVID-19 has been much worse. To help those affected by the pandemic in India, the podcasting community has come together under the hashtag #podforchange banner to raise funds through an exclusive NGO partner, Give India. Please join PM Power Consulting and the Software People Stories and #podforchange as we look to make a positive impact in the lives of those affected by COVID-19. Please visit the link in the description. Someone really needs the help. We all like doing good. We feel good about doing good, says our guest this week on the Software People Stories, Charles Weindorf, IT Director and Chief Software Engineer, or Chuck as he's popularly called. It's rare we have a guest that started their career right out of high school by walking into a company and telling them that he could write software for their IT and stayed on with writing code, learning new technology, even becoming good at low code recently and sharing with software engineers what he learned from his experiments and failures and much more. Chuck has compiled all of his experiences into a book called Leaders and Software Engineers Communicate and Motivate Without Speaking in Code. This conversation reflects these words as Chuck's experiences connect deeply with anyone who's developed software or wanted to do so. He also talks about customer empathy, building quality software, and shedding light on the value of software delivered amongst other insights. Listen on. Good morning. Uh, to you Chuck, a very warm welcome to you on the Software People Stories podcast. It's wonderful having you here with us today. Oh, thanks Chitra. It's great to be here. So we start the conversations on the Software People Stories by asking our guests to introduce themselves to our listeners. And how would you like to do that? Oh, uh, fantastic. So First of all, I, I like to say I'm, I'm one of you. I'm, I'm a, someone who has been in the IT and engineering area my entire life. I started out in my high school years and, and now I'm, I'm, I'm over 60. So, you know, it was a long time ago. And I, I found that the schools did not teach the kind of new technology that I wanted to learn. So I became a hobbyist. So I began to buy computer equipment, uh, find time in any automated device I could get my hands on to build software. And it ended up being uh, right after high school, uh, I walked over to a local company here and said, hey, I, I write programs. Do you guys do any of this here? And uh, uh, they were uh, good enough to offer me a job. And then I was at that organization uh, called Erie Insurance in Erie, Pennsylvania for uh, just uh, almost 40 years. Uh, during that time, I spent a lot of time both building software and then leading people who write software packages. And I found out uh, that as a group, we work very differently. And personally, then I, I adjusted my leadership style so that it would uh, make life easy for software engineers to do their best work and would try and take uh, roadblocks out of their way or, or try and take uncomfortable situations and problems and uh, take them on as a manager in order to let them do uh, the type of things they do best. And uh, that led to me uh, writing a book about uh, all of the 
uh, communication and the techniques I use to pass along my ideas and, and to lead engineers. Thanks, Chuck. Both my co-host and myself had the opportunity of uh, reading your book, and I could certainly relate to so many of those experiences. It's a bag full of joy, if I can call it as such. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and and certainly, I'm sure there's there's a lot of software engineers who would relate to the stories that you have, and uh, the narrative and style are also interesting. You know, you said that you started out in high school. For someone like me, at least, it's quite a daunting thing. The fact that you realized early on that, and you have been very self-taught. How is it that, you know, you just got that confidence to go out there and directly apply for a job or offer your services? Yes. I, you know, I think it was, uh, it was less about, you know, the confidence or the courage to do that. And it was more about uh, uh, that, that real drive that says, this is what I want to do. And so that desire to, to work in automation, uh, to work in new technologies, uh, to be able to see software in my head and then make it work in a machine. All those things were just so attractive to me that I, I also had a little bit of confidence as I was a, a younger man and younger men tend to have too much confidence sometimes. And I thought, you know, I, I like doing this. I've, I know some people who are good at it and I bet I could do just what they do and do it well too. So there was a little bit of that. I, you know, I think I can, I can learn it and I can do it well. I was going to be dedicated to it. So if uh, one way that I would talk to people saying, well, if I'm not doing software development here at this company, I will go do software development somewhere else, you know, that will have me. And so I was very set on this career and that gave me a little bit of focus and a little bit of insights to be able to say, okay, how do I approach it? How do I learn from other people? Uh, what is valuable to the company for me to learn? And that all made for a pretty good uh, way to get started in my career. And uh, they began to trust me rather quickly. And they gave me lots and lots of work, which is, uh, <laughs> which is normal for businesses. When they find out you're, uh, you're able to do uh, some software development, you end up uh, getting lots and lots of work. And uh, I enjoyed it. And, and it was a great way to, uh, you know, I was, uh, had a, had a, got married and had a family very young. So uh, it was a great way to put some food on the table. And uh, nothing makes you grow up like having a house full of uh, people to feed. Oh, yes, that certainly does. I'm just wondering, there's a way that you can share all these early life lessons with the children of today. And if they could listen to you and, and see that having a bit of that swagger, sensing what people need and how to reach out for help, all super valuable advice, I'd say, for young people today. Well, I, I really love working with young people. I was uh, one of the sponsors of the internship program. Uh, in my previous role. So the, when software engineers came into our organization as interns, uh, they, they were stuck with me giving speeches and, and uh, talking to them about how to be successful in the software engineering field. In particular, in the United States, it's difficult uh, for young ladies as yourself to get a start in the field. Uh, and it, it didn't used to be that way. So when I talked to young people, I, I talked about that the talent and the young ladies in, in the United States, that going into the software engineering field, they would do very well. Uh, they seem to select other 
other careers, other skills, uh, and there are fewer ladies coming into the software engineering program. So one thing I like to do is, is to encourage uh, young ladies to try it because uh, when I started, my three of my leads were, were ladies and they were all better than me at this. They were incredible. And uh, so I, I feel we're losing some talent in the younger generation by not inviting more, uh, more women to join the field. As far as the young men, you know, then the, that I would give all people in their young career, the advice is my education was self-taught because uh, there weren't degrees and there weren't things that were specific to the software engineering field. I do think that now it is very important to have degrees and certifications uh, because there are so many people in the IT field who hold certain specialties. So I might suggest to a young person is a uh, Look at the IT field, see what technologies you really like, what area you like to work in, and then do some extra education in those things. So uh, obtain a certification, obtain your college degree, uh, and those things open a lot of doors to say that uh, you have accomplished a lot already as a young engineer and uh, that you might be ready for that full-time career that you're searching for. So I, I still think education is absolutely critical to success. It was different in my day where, where we were making things up as we went and there was no curriculum and you had to learn stuff by experimenting. I would use all the resources of today, uh, the education, the formal education, and also the informal user groups and other things to gain that knowledge. That gives you a little bit of an edge when starting your career. As you start your career, it's important to know that uh, the companies need your help and there's a, a mountain of work waiting to be done. Uh, so dig into that work earnestly, do it well with high quality, and you will be rewarded. I, I guarantee it. Wonderful. We usually ask our podcast guests to share their nuggets and pearls of wisdom with aspiring technologists towards the end. But I love the fact that this was flipped to the beginning itself. Oh, that's, that's fine. Uh, yeah, I, I, the, in that particular topic to me is is very important. I realized as I was getting a, a little older that um, I'm not going to be the leader of tomorrow. Uh, that I've I've done my work within this field, and there will be a day when I retire. Uh, and I want to share some of the things that I've learned the hard way with uh, with folks who will listen and and help them. Uh, it, another step down the line in their own careers. And the, the engineers of today are going to take us into the future, are going to have the newer technologies and even more fantastic possibilities. Uh, and while I was uh, maybe building the pyramids in, uh, in terms of uh, software, uh, they'll be building the modern buildings uh, tomorrow with, uh, with all the different types of software uh, that is made to run on many devices, where my day was one big old mainframe. Uh, let's say, what's the place we ran things. So uh, I, I love to help folks along in their careers by uh, just sharing where I've made mistakes. Uh, honestly, that's the way I've learned. Like I said before, I think it's wonderful that you published the book before you retired. Although I don't think, I don't get the sense after reading the book that you'll actually ever retire. <laughs> Uh, my wife says the same thing, yes. <laughs> There's, there was one thing that certainly caught my attention, not only while I was reading the book and you just said it. You said that you have this ability to see code. Oh. So how do you do that? Well, I think it started 
when I was uh, when I was in first grade. So this is uh, in in the U.S. That's six years old. And when I was in first grade, my my old man, my dad, got a, a chess set out, and he says, "Hey, uh, you know, you're you seem to like this strategy stuff. Let's let's learn to play chess." And I had a, a bit of a flair for it. My grades in school weren't all that good. I I, I didn't consider myself to be uh, you know very intelligent that way. But when somebody put the chessboard in front of me, it seemed to make a lot of sense. And in the game of chess, uh, it has a lot to do with moving pieces in your head uh, to new positions and then figuring out how they interact. And after playing chess all the way through my high school years, including you know some competition. I figured out that the same mechanism that made the chessboard move in my head could move source code in my head. And I would uh, be able to sit and see uh, how code and, and routines and uh, performance uh, routines interacting against each other in terms of performance, how those things might work together. And I would make in my head a picture of how I thought that they would interact and how they would uh, go in a certain order and what the result would be. And I had a, uh, in my youth, I had a really good memory for where in that big chunk of source code things happened. So I was able to go quickly. And, and I think those skills ended up uh, being very handy when I went into large systems. So some of the systems uh, that I've been in, uh, the, probably the largest one was a 10 million line of code application. And so you had to, to learn quick where things were and to make your life easier, uh, learn where to go quickly so that you could ignore the other 9 million lines of code and go over to the one uh, that had the, the, the routines that you needed to change or, or fix. So I think it was, it was first of all, just as a, a gift to be able to do some of this. And then it was training my mind through uh, through play. So it was, uh, I want to say I did it on purpose, but I think playing chess helped me a lot in seeing code and how it moves. That's an extremely interesting analogy. I'm almost thinking that you were building systems in your mind. And when you actually wrote code for applications, it was just a question of translating what was in your mind onto into a machine. The next thing that I that caught my attention in your book was when you said that you had the intuition to find defects. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that we're talking about how the mind can be trained and exercised to memorize moves and examine interactions almost virtually in your head before you encode them. If somebody wanted to develop it and for a software engineer, this is, this is so important to have, how can they do it? That is certainly one of the, the things that uh, it does help your career a lot. Software is so complicated and has so many ways you can navigate the pathways, you know, depending on all the decision statements and all the branching and the forming routines and returning. All of that is really more than the human mind can comprehend in terms of motion. So sometimes you just have to see it working like the old mechanical watch with all the gears going. They're all moving at the same time. There's multiple threads and all that craziness going on now. So for training an individual to look for things that are defects, because fixing the defects really makes the software valuable at the end of the day because it's, it would be doing accurate work. I would say a couple things helped me in becoming a good troubleshooter. And above all, and this, this actually made my employer a little nervous sometimes, I did not have fear of breaking something. Now, 
my my poor dad knows this. I, I since I was a little bit of an experimenter when I was young too, I would tend to break things by taking them apart and uh, try and put them back together and have a couple of parts left over, and then he'd have to help figure out what I did wrong. And so some of it is just that that desire to figure out how it actually works. So once you know how the, the device or the software works in a certain way, your mind begins to become accustomed to the things that are most likely to, uh, let's say, have the type of variability or the complexity that could hide a defect. So when I would hear a defect about uh, a program, uh, I was given a big dollar calculation routine early in my career. And I figured out pretty quickly where this darn thing would break pretty frequently. Uh, it was in one area where it was taking table-driven entries from people and applying it into the mechanical routines to come out with a dollar amount at the end of the day. It was $100 is what we need to bill somebody for. But the, the logic was crazy, you know, it was very complex. So I didn't have to know all about the logic, but I had to know where the logic did its interactions with people and where it did its most complex routines. And once I figured out where those things were, whenever there was a problem, I would get that first reaction of, oh boy, that's probably over in this area again. Uh, because uh, let's just face it, some of the code changes frequently, some of the code doesn't change frequently. And uh, the, the most frequent change means that's where your problems are likely to be. So I use that as a form of intuition, I guess. It was more of a of becoming a troubleshooting habit to find out what was the most likely place for things to break, going there first, doing my initial testing and unit testing, and then finding out, it was I right? And if I could then prove in that small area of code that I was correct, it saved a lot of time. And I, I did talk about having, you know, having that a little bit of an aggressiveness in making changes and seeing if we could fix things a certain way. The software engineering field is great because you can do that, run your program in a test environment, see it break and, and do things you don't want it to do and fix it before you then try it again, uh, and get it ready for production and then are confident that it's going to, uh, to work. So that's the place I would say, uh, be brave uh, in your test environment, experiment, find out why things work the way they do, uh, so that uh, when you are ready for production, you can honestly be confident and know that your intended fix is in. So, so part of it is having the confidence to go ahead and, and make some mistakes in those low environments and, and forgive yourself for that. That's all part of the learning process. And uh, yeah, as I mentioned, my poor dad knows I was not afraid to break things. So I had that slight advantage of uh, curiosity and maybe a, a little bit of a, a lack of fear of failing for a short time in order to uh, succeed over the long time. That's a really nice story, Chuck. In fact, I'm just thinking that, you know, even apart from the ability to be brave, uh, I'm also thinking that today, a lot of us actually have the agency to do a lot more breaking mm -hmm. before you actually build, uh, simply because of the availability of memory and compute for just a few dollars a month. Even if I look back to when I started programming, to be very careful of how you're using those resources and make sure that you don't break anything. Yes. But I'm just thinking that, you know, now there's a lot more agency for, for younger people to be experimental. And in fact, I'm almost thinking that one lesson, I think they should start with this first break stuff, of course, in your 
test environment or in your sandbox. And then that'll sort of give you that extra confidence and courage to go out there and look at more complex pieces, isn't it? Yes, that's that's well said. You know, if if we were, uh, let's say if I was an airplane pilot or, or something like that, I, I wouldn't want to think that way where I could, well, maybe I'll try this with the airplane. Oh, you, you know, you want to do all of your training, you know, in simulators and have good instructors. We don't have that kind of hands-on instruction every day in software engineering, but we do have the ability uh, to fail fast and fail in a, in a small environment. And you're right. The, uh, the ability to, to uh, stand up new containers and small development environments that are safe uh, is the precise place uh, to go and do your experimentation. And that's so much easier than other uh, careers. Certainly. You know, one question that was coming to my mind while you were talking about the experiments that you did and how you learned was, you know, today when a lot of fresh engineers are coming into the workforce, more often than not, they're inheriting somebody else's code. Because a lot of the large systems have in some way or the other already been put together and you're building on top of it. You know, what is it that you would share with engineers to leave in terms of a very solid legacy? You know, it could be a trail of breadcrumbs or, you know, leaving footprints that people, the the fresher engineers could actually look at, learn and enjoy that learning experience versus most engineers, you know, have this daunting task of the minute you get into your first job, you're most likely not going to write new code, but you're going to have to learn how to read the existing code and work with it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That is a very real situation. And uh, many companies want you to start there. So they, they want you to learn what the business does already. And many of our businesses today are defined by how their software accomplishes work. So you can't look at the modern finance companies or the the modern uh, IT companies of today and say they are anything but data and the way our software interacts with the data uh, in order to help do the jobs of the people that work there. And so with that, it's great to have the mindset of, I should go in and learn today's software. And you'll get insights into uh, the generation that came before you. Uh, even though that generation might've only been five years ago, it's, it's not like it has to be 30 year old software, but because software is expensive to build, it's people intensive and it can uh, take some significant amount of time. The resources tend not to be cheap. We are, are pretty well rewarded in our field. So we uh, have very nice careers, but it does cost some money then to build software. So leveraging that software through reuse and maybe through a modern service call or by encapsulating it so that it can work with newer technology is one thing I would suggest. So if you think that there's a good software routine in an older technology that you can use without having to rewrite the whole thing, certainly do that. Uh, as, unless your company is saying, hey, we want to retire something, then you, you know it's the opposite. But I've always felt that learning what that older technology does gives you a lot of insight into how the business uh, works today. And one thing that I like about looking at legacy software is that when I see the legacy software, I begin to think about, wow, well, today's tools could do that better. Uh, and wouldn't the business be happy if we did some things with a newer technology, a more creative way or a more innovative way? 
and that helps all the people in the company uh, get better. Uh, at, at one point, I had a software package when I was uh, uh, quite young, and I had 900 people were using the software package uh, in the company, and I was uh, all excited that if I did, if I could just save a couple minutes uh, of their time uh, a day, that added up to like the cost of my my salary. So I could honestly tell the company I was doing some good. Uh, I think all of that comes with leveraging the software that is there today and enhancing it through your own change in that language or through another language that can leverage that that older logic through uh, services and other interfaces. So it's it's a balance. The thing to leave to others in the future for when you build and how how do you help that next generation that is probably one of the most difficult IT things is to plan for the future when you're so busy trying to innovate today. But it's important as you're transitioning out of one role uh, and you have a certain technical knowledge in the application that you can, if if the people are already there, do some hands-on mentoring and, and describing of your routines, uh, especially those most complex, those most frequent to change, or those most, let's say, difficult uh, to change. So those things that are uh, have to be done a certain way in order to keep quality high or performance high. Spend time adding uh, documentation to those routines. Build a procedure that says when you change this, make sure you do these uh, particular steps to check your quality. Each of those things then helps make the, the next generation's life a bit easier. And sometimes I've, I've done well in transitioning and sometimes I have not. Uh, the Probably the best example was I had an application, I was one of the, the builders. So this is a 1.4 million line application. I was one of the first two engineers uh, who were assigned to it. And over a few years, it grew very fast. Uh, and when we were then transitioning me to a new role, I wrote a 70 page manual of here's all the things I know about this application because it was it was a mission critical one. I, I came back many years later. This is uh, almost 15 years later, and I found an individual who still had this book, this manual in their hands of the tricks uh, to maintain the software as we were retiring it. And uh, I was very happy that uh, that I did that one well. Uh, I had something valuable to pass along to the next generation. The application ran well for another 10 years after I left it. Wow, that's a, that's an awesome story. And in fact, I was just thinking that, yes, in mission-critical software, people do take pains to write. I, for one, have been part of that those programs, having started my career in avionics. But some, due to some reason or the other, you don't see that across other verticals, business verticals. And I wish there were more of it. I think there'll be less of thrashing around of software engineers, especially the newer ones when they, you know, get into their first jobs and, and things like that. I'm slightly changing tack here towards customers and customer empathy. You know, a lot of time, many engineers are far removed from actual users. I mean, unless, let's say you're an entrepreneur who's, or, um, you know, a small group of engineers that's working directly with customers. And very often I see this tension, let's say, between product managers and engineers, where the product manager is trying hard to explain what a customer actually needs. Or another example would be that there is a defect reported from the field. And uh, while the engineers, I mean, the support guys probably know, you know, what exactly happened and so on. And, you know, whether the customer was using it in a certain way and it caused a problem. But then the engineers take it back and they say, okay, we fixed this. But what I see is how can we improve 
or how can we bring about the feeling of empathy in engineers towards the people who are actually going to use what they are creating or building or fixing? That's a great topic. One of uh, the folks who trained me was, uh, well, he was an old timer who knew that we had so few engineers <clears throat> that one engineer making one mistake could actually uh, be very widespread in its, in its impact. So his concept of how you hold yourself accountable and improve was to actually make you go and do the job of the individuals who were using your software after you were you were building it. And uh, so he had built software and then he had gone and, and used that software from the business side to see how it was. So when uh, he introduced me to the organization, I was, uh, I think, uh, 19 years old when he <laughs> decided to assign me some work in this certain area. And I went over there and I met two ladies who were managers in this area. And he had a very particular way of speaking. So he, he says, all you need to do is to make these two ladies happy. You know, I'm like, okay, that sounds great. <laughs> and uh, well, it wasn't because they had lots of ideas on how to do things and, and where they needed help. And so the first thing that, that I was assigned to do was here, sit down at this desk over here, open up the software, take the tools that they use. And they had some, uh, they had some, some very interesting mechanical financial tools. It was almost like jet, like the slide rules of the day were back. The calculators were just coming onto desktop. And so they had some really neat uh, uh, calculating wheels, let's say, that could help them with, with fast calculating. And so I'm sitting there doing this stuff by hand and I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to be a lot smarter than a software engineer to do this job. And uh, that gave me lots of ideas to say, boy, we could do a whole lot better than this mechanical wheel that does calculating. I've got this big computer over here uh, that could be taught to do the same thing and do it accurately and sub-second and, and save some of the frustration so you can get on to the, the people side of the job. I use that many times afterwards. Uh, I had software that was running in, oh, I want to say 2,500 different branch office locations. And I was frequently the one to volunteer to go see what people were experiencing with it. Uh, and so once I got out in the field and watched people do it, and I watched the way they were doing it, I would see some things that way they were doing things within the software. I'm like, oh, that's what they're doing. And that would give me the insights to say that the user experience that we had produced, although we, we tried the best we could, but we didn't know the job, uh, we had caused either confusion, difficulties, inaccuracies, frustration. I like the color green. The color green didn't go well on any screens really for the one, you know, and so all the sorts of things about, uh, ooh, I see that screen looks a little different than the last screen. No wonder they're having trouble transitioning their work. All those things came into a pipeline that said, here's how we need to improve ourselves and improving ourselves in the, in the way we listen to the business and the way we interpret that into our code or low code nowadays, that's all very important to the success of the software engineering team. And uh, what a way to then have new projects and new work brought to you is when you have that reputation of being able to provide the solution that is really well accepted by the people doing the job, then you've hit a certain degree of success in the IT field which is, uh, uh, let's say it's, uh, it's difficult to attain. It's difficult to, to have software do jobs that you're not familiar with uh, that other people then uh, take your solution and really love it. 
Uh, so once you've been able to make those connections, those personal connections, your success will be significant. So what you're saying is encouraging engineers to actually go out there and walk in the shoes of their customers yeah. to, to really feel for what they go through when they use what you build. Sure. Well, if we look at our automation tools, uh, we, we build software and each of the tools have their own quirks or their IDEs have a way of working and we'll get lots of ideas about, boy, if the IDE could just work a little differently, I'd, I'd go faster. We submit recommendations to our uh, the, the companies that build our compilers and our, our software development engines. Well, that's the same thing that the business uh, folks would love to have is the ability to make suggestions on how to do things better. We need to find ways to get close to those folks to hear those suggestions in order to be able to act on them. And sometimes companies aren't good at that. They are good at connecting a software engineer with folks using the solution. Yeah, and then it also matters, and I think this is also the title of your book, how to communicate in a language where people understand yes. what you're building or you know how, how you convey that and uh, what in your experience has worked there and what hasn't worked? I, I, really, like, I really like a technique that works in two directions. And, and one is just what we described. So going, going and trying the job myself and seeing if I can, if I can use my own software and if it looks good and, and runs well and helps do the job, then I, I can make adjustments to improve that. So that's that one technique I like. The second technique, which is, uh, let's say more familiar to the software engineers is we see new technologies and capabilities all the time come across our desk and saying, well, maybe our software can do this particular feature that today is not part of the software. So how, how can I take the insights that I received from, from talking and using the software as a as an end user, and how can I take those ideas and equate them to the new technologies that are becoming available and be able to present to the business, hey, this new technology that we have or this new capability that we have can help us get our jobs done. And in, in that case, that is the place that I think that we all can uh, help in the communication to the business that we have a new capability and the business have, may have no clue that we have anything that, uh, <laughs> that could help them out, but we might be sitting on some tools that are great. The problem with talking to the business is we have to put them in terms of what the, what the software can do for them in their daily lives. And it can't be the technical description. So I was very much, oh, I've got this new message queuing software when message queuing came out. I was one of the early adopters and I was all fired up about it. And I'm talking about you know, to the business, yeah, you can put this message on this machine over here and then it can end up in that routine over there. And there's, uh, you know, the interface is, is quick and, and uh, you know, the, the message is guaranteed to be delivered and all those good technical aspects of a messaging system. And the folks in the business, the vice president sitting there looking at me like, okay, kid, no, that's great, but what does it do? <laughs> and like, oh, yeah, he doesn't care about what the technology tricks are. Uh, he cares about now that I can do that, I said, oh, well, instead of waiting overnight for this program to run, I can have the program run constantly. You send a message to it. The program interacts on it right now and sends me a message back saying, I'm done. So instead of waiting overnight, you could wait, you know, only a few seconds. Ding. Okay. Now the lights all come on and, and the, the vice president says, I want that. And uh, that's the way the sponsorship happens. It doesn't happen 
through a technical concept. It happens through an applied technique that helps the business. And then uh, the work uh, and the sponsorship for new technologies come, come to you. Once you've been able to describe to the organization what, what concept does this new technology provide to us? What's the capability that it, uh, it, it has it is not technical but business related? And then we have a great day because we'll, uh, we'll be able to have that technology and the cost we put into it pay for itself and benefit the, the company over many years. That's very nicely put, Chuck. Thank you. Engineer productivity is still largely measured in terms of time spent and you know dollar per hour versus you know all that you have said so far is actually translating to business value. Do you have any thoughts on how quote unquote measure of productivity can shift from the concept of dollar per hour to value delivered? Yes. Yes. Perfect. This is actually the challenge of, um, you know, good consulting, right? It, it, coming from the outside of a business, you have to be able to show, hey, uh, we know a certain skill. We can apply that skill in your business and you're going to pay me to do that complex work. But in the end of the day, you are going to see these things and these things have a value. Now, it could be the value of uh, greater customer service, which is the business has to weigh its costs to provide greater services. It could be uh, you'll need fewer people to do a certain job, which will free them up for better work. It could be that you'll have the people uh, able to cover more ground and do more work. So if your company grows, that uh, you can uh, have your staff become more powerful, more, more able to help the organization. So value can come in in a number of ways. The, the place where I think we we are not so good in the IT area is getting into the mindset that we can count up the number of modules we've created, the number of features that they can do. I was in the era of, of, of actually counting up lines of code. Isn't it great? We've got 10,000 lines of code we did this month. And that's great, but uh, it seemed to me that the teams that counted the lines of code ended up having a lot of code that wasn't that great. And there here's some. There was some old timer back in the corner writing an assembler routine that, that was uh, a couple of hundred transactions long, but it did this immense amount of work at high speed. I'm like, okay, what's the trick for us to graduate from the mindset of I'm very busy and I'm doing a lot of work to the work I am doing is valuable quickly to the organization. Some big projects back in the day would take a year and you'd be, well, we're gonna go away in the back room and build this application. We'll see you in a year and then you come back and the business would say, well, it's pretty good, but I wanna change a lot of stuff. And, and so that's where I felt that the, uh, the agile interactions are great. So the agile mindset where we're, we're constantly building and demonstrating things, all of that is, is very helpful for uh, a software engineering team to be able to do that and get feedback quickly. So I, I think that that is where we begin to see through those frequent interactions where the business perceives value and then we can magnify or we can focus on those most valuable places. I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone. I like the, the next new shiny technical toy that I can get my hands on. Uh, but I've become disciplined enough to say that as I look at it, can I tell the business, this is the value we get out of this new tool and you'll be happy we have it because. And in a way, we have to turn ourselves into salespeople. And that's not easy for software engineers because uh, half of us uh, as software engineers don't like to communicate overly 
part of our day. We like to do our technical work and be focused and quiet. And uh, that's, that's what we do well. So that why not do more of that? But you have to break away from the source code and the back, the back room of building software and interact with people and consider the value of the things we do because we're a little pricey. We, we make a good dollar uh, for our skills. Therefore, we should uh, respect that the business uh, needs us to be good stewards of cost. And being good stewards of cost mean if my job that I do creates more value for the organization uh, than they are needing to pay me for my, you know, my services, then I have a great situation. The company is going to be stronger. Maybe the company will grow and companies that grow have more opportunity. So for me, providing value to the organization means that the organization provides me valuable things down the road. Uh, the only reason I ended up in, in the roles that I have, people leadership over time, was the fact that I could build that bridge, the bridge between the organization and what value software brings and the people that build the software, how to assist in their insights on where to focus and where to provide the most value. When we can make those connections and we can help our companies uh, become healthier and grow, well, that helps everybody uh, because then it, uh, the companies keep want to keep their top talent. They want to keep people who are good at their software engineering jobs happy, and uh, they will reward them accordingly in order to keep them. And, and so that, that, that spreads a lot of happiness around the organization when you have that model working. Very nicely put, Chuck. I had so many questions around things like tech debt and DevOps and yeah. tools and complexity. Uh, but I also realized that we've come quite close to the end of this conversation for now. I would certainly like to look forward to more conversations if there's a possibility of that. So I would, just I would, yeah, I would be happy to, uh, to talk to you again. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. And so before we bring this conversation, this particular episode to a close, are there any messages that you'd like to leave our listeners with? One, one of the things that I really am certain is the is the right way to do things in IT for people who are working within it is to, to do two things. And they're going to sound different. They're going to sound backwards, let's say. One is to get really good at the technology that you're, uh, you, you've chosen to work on. Uh, be one of the best. Try and, and learn it thoroughly. Use it the right way, the way intended. Innovate for maybe some ways that other folks haven't thought of that are, that are valuable to your organization. So definitely do that and uh, commit to being one of the best. That's, that's just the way I get up every day is like, oh, I hope I'm average. Nah, I don't like that. I like to try and be a little better. So, so certainly do that. And here's the part that, that sounds different. When you see the next thing coming that should be the next logical step for the IT organization, you have to be able to take that technology that you love and have learned really well, push it aside and say, okay, I am now going to start learning something else. That is the biggest step for an IT person to do because you get that feeling that I, I'm a senior today. I'm a senior technologist. I know this better than anybody. And here now I've got to go learn something else. And I'm going to be right back to the junior. I don't know anything about it. And I got to learn from scratch. That is exactly what we are here for is to shepherd our companies through technical change. And technical change might mean me relearning my job don't be afraid to do that. That is the best way in, in the long run to be valuable to the organization, to build a long career, to open doors inside of other organizations. Let's say you know, it, it happens that you need to uh, change uh, roles uh, down the road. You'll be better prepared as someone who learns well, who 
knows that, hey, uh, we're no longer usually using Visual Basic 3 or whatever you know, was back in the dark ages. Uh, and that we've got these uh, low-code platforms coming. Uh, and I was an early adopter of low-code when I was over 55 years old and people were looking at me like I was crazy. And I think, no, I think that's where the business is going. The business is going to go to lower-code solutions where we code a little less and we build a visual solution more often. And uh, in the six years since I started that journey, I've become a proponent of it. Uh, my teams work on it, and I do think that is going to mean we push some of the older uh, compiled technologies out uh, off of our desktop. It's hard, but it is ultimately the way to remain of high value to your organization. So grab that technology, learn it well, and when it's time, let it go. Uh, it's really hard to do, but that's, uh, that's what we're expected to do as successful professionals. Valuable lessons and insights for everyone, I'm sure, Chuck. Thank you. This has been a really fun conversation. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, oh Chitra, thank you. This is, uh, this is fun. I, I mean, I, you know, I work for a living like we all do, but boy, isn't it a great day when we can uh, uh, talk about our careers and, and why, why do we like it? Why do we like doing this stuff? Uh, and, and, and so it's great to uh, reminisce about things as we're uh, a little younger in my career and how it's changed today. And, but the people haven't changed. The people want to do well. We, we in our, we're very proud individuals in, in software development and IT. And we want, to, we want to have the company pat us on the back and say, you did, you did good. We still like it. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.